Good evening, and welcome back to our second in potentially a series, depending on what people want. One rabbi, or one mentor, sorry, one mentor, two rabbis. So the influences that Rabbi Kern and I very much look at in, in our lives. I heard many years ago what a rabbi said when his induction in his shul, that he was a Talmud Chacham. Didn't mean that he was promoting himself as a scholar, but that he was a pupil of a Chacham, of a wise person. And the people that we have selected for you over the weeks are, are definitely wise individuals from varied backgrounds. And Rav Hirsch is one of those people, I think Rav Hirsch is like the relative you have, that you only see at a Simcha from time to time, who wins the lottery that everybody in the family wants to claim is their closest relative because suddenly he's, no, he's won the lottery. And from left to right along the religious spectrum, everyone claims that Rav Hirsch is important to them. Somehow the Haredi community sees something in Rav Hirsch that's very, very beautiful and very genuine and they like to claim him. The more modern community wants to claim him, so everyone's sort of grabbing hold of him. So, and who is the real Rav Hirsch? It's probably a very complicated question to answer and academics, no doubt, will fight over, over that answer. Where does he come in, just very briefly? When the ghetto walls were, or the ghetto gates were opened and Jews had access to, to the world, the world that, had, that they'd been forbidden to access for so many, so, so many years, decades, centuries, there were a number of questions they, could, they had to answer. What do we do about this new world and the opportunities that the world is now providing us with? Do we embrace it fully and leave behind the ghetto, leave behind the orthodoxy, leave behind the, the Torah, the religion, which for so many of them, that had become the, the recipe for disaster in their lives. It was religion that kept them apart from everybody else, and the religion that brought distrust, and the religion that, that was challenged by Christianity, and they were blamed for, for deicide, for killing, for killing a god, for killing Jesus, and they were, they were shunted out of society and restricted, and their lives were very complicated. Do we, run, do we run away from it? Shut the ghetto doors. Who wants this new modern life? It's going to be a threat to our, to our Torah existence. It's just not worth it. It's too risky to embrace it. Or do we look at the new opportunity and say to ourselves, actually, there's a lot of good that we can take from this world. A lot, a lot of positive things, but we have to do so with a nod, or more than a nod, with a, with a, by prostrating ourselves at the, at the feet of Torah and orthodoxy and somehow synthesize two things which presumably were contradictory. Rav Hirsch's method was unique in its espousal of what appeared to be a total contradiction. Fidelity to the old and embrace of the new. And the Jewish world at that point was very, was very divided. Did you fully embrace the new? and reject the old, or do you keep the old and reject the new? The idea that you could somehow do both was very bold and very brave. And point of fact, the path that he blazed involved a subtle intertwining of tradition and innovation. The restatement of truths in terms that couched age-old ideas in a reasoned idiom and attractive garb without yielding an iota in religious observance. You are not less religious if you follow this path. He demanded total adherence to the Shulchan Aruch, to the Code of Jewish Law, to Torah, to Halacha. There was no, no compromise. It's not a, oh, I don't really do all that. I just do this. It's not true. He wanted total fidelity to the Halachic system. And anybody that chooses not to keep certain areas of Halacha would have been disapproved of by Rav Hirsch. 
you have as many degrees from the Germ- from the gymnasiums in Germany, all the academic qualifications you want. And Rav Hirsch would have been great, fantastic. But if you're not keeping halacha, then he would have been not so fantastic. It's not an easy version of Judaism. It was actually much more complicated because whenever you're doing synthesis, it's easy to be an extremist on either side. Synthesis is always much more challenging. Many have laid claim to being his spiritual heirs, and tonight we're going to lay that claim as well, his spiritual heirs, by teaching some of his Torah. Perhaps bringing Rav Hirsch's voice out tonight will be the best way to really understand his teachings. So let me read you a couple of quotes, and they're so beautiful in the way he writes. Let us be clear about one thing. To me, scriptures are the word of God. Judaism and the Jewish law represent the revealed will of God. It is then conceivable. So is it then conceivable that I should place myself at the crossroads of history and inquire of every passerby as to his views and his opinions and seek his endorsement? Or should I perhaps alter the word of the living God as the reformed community did at the same time? His, one of his major battles in religion was battling the reform movement in Germany that at one point wanted to move Shabbos to Sunday they redesigned the shul to make it look like a church. They did away with Brit Milah. Some of the things didn't grab hold. Also, moving Shabbos to Sunday sounds like a good idea if you're an early Reformed Jew because the whole point was you, were, you couldn't socialize with your Christian friend on Saturday because you were being Jewish and you were having Shabbat. If you all move Shabbos to Sunday, then you can go out on Saturday with your German friend and be like the regular Germans and everyone can have Sunday as a day of worship. Rejigging the shawl to resemble the church made a lot of sense. That way everybody worshipped in the same physical space. The bimmer goes at the front, everyone faces the congregation. They put in an organ, not to, doing away with Brit Milah. To some degree that has stayed amongst some parts of the community, but there's been a resurgence other than those that like to argue on medical grounds and have their own radical ideas. But some of those ideas stayed, some didn't stay. It's abundantly evident that he was receptive to secular wisdom, but here's the caveat. That's important to know. Only if it passed his litmus test. Hence, the Jew will not be opposed to any science, any art form, any culture that is truly ethical, truly moral. He will measure everything by the eternally inviolable yardstick of the teachings of his God. Nothing will exist for him that cannot stand up before the divine will. Never at any time will the Jew sacrifice one iota of his Judaism. At no time will he bring his Judaism in conformity with the times. It's not about modernizing, bringing it like the reform movement was suggesting in Germany, do away with the old and bring in the new. But he will gladly accept all values that his time will have to offer. Nothing wrong with that, as long as they conform with the spirit of Judaism. In every age, he will regard it as his task to evaluate the time and its conditions from the Jewish point of view. And we can continue in that legacy today. It's much more dangerous. Obviously, if you throw yourselves fully into the modern world, you have no issues about rejecting anything in Judaism. If you run away from the modern world, then that's also pretty easy. You just don't bother. But when you realize, when you accept, as Rav Hirsch did, that there's a value, there's something to be gained by exposure to the world outside, yes, you are tiptoeing ever closer to a precipice where you could fall. You could make the wrong choice. But that's, that's what we have to shiver for. So remind you of a posuk. You know, those people who are very self-righteous forget that the Torah actually says explicitly 
when this when the nasi when the president when the leader of the community sins this will be his sacrifice doesn't say if he sins it's an, it's an eventuality everybody does something wrong and the Torah recognizes that and provides a formula which his ancestors would have offered up in the temple being a Kohen and all that he would know would have brought the sacrifices on behalf of the king on behalf of the nasi on behalf of anybody that even the Kohen Gadol could have got things wrong in various rulings, and the Torah recognizes that. So this idea that we have to avoid everything because there's a possibility of getting something wrong, I don't know if that necessarily is what the Torah is, is suggesting to us. He wanted a non-ghettoized Judaism. Get out the ghetto, see the world. And his encouragement of a rabbinate committed to active participation in civic life. But again, it was the rabbinate that was well-versed in religion, respectful of the religion, obedient to all of that. It was Rav Hirsch's belief that rabbinic scholars subsequent to acquiring proficiency in Jewish studies must broaden their horizons as well. Listen to this beautiful language. Do not shirk the social obligations of pulsating modern life. Do not regret that today's nations, in the struggle for enlightenment, have invited also the sons of Jewish law meaning the rabbis, to participate in their social aspirations. Be a part of the world in which we live and do so with the law, with the Torah, with God. And that's not going to be a problem. And here he turns his attention, before we turn our attention to studying a bit of Torah with Rav Hirsch's point of view, to those that perhaps had a different approach and wanted to keep the young, wanted to keep everybody just protected in a bubble without exposure to anything. Rav Hirsch was distressed by the other extreme, whose advocates, frightened, would like to isolate their disciples by limiting their studies to the sacred writings of Judaism. See if you agree with Rav Hirsch's point of view. Only under duress, we can call it in England, Ofsted, the government, you know, we can put in modern words to make it more, more, more understandable. Only under duress do they consider it justifiable to permit their students a fleeting glance at the achievements of the human mind that lie outside the limits of our sacred literature. Loaded sentence. Number one, to recognize there, are, there is wisdom out. I mean, the Gemara says it. There's wisdom amongst other peoples in the world. And to, to pretend otherwise is foolish. But that we should actively allow our young people, our students, to, to, to be exposed to it. They fail to see that such complete isolation is not possible, and that allowing their students to remain in ignorance of other subjects will only serve to make their fears come true. If the world outside of the ghetto is so scary, and you never train anybody to understand that world, then it becomes the big scary monster that lurks in the background that's going to try and ensnare you. But if you expose people to it and they recognize what it is and the value or the dangers in it, then it's, no longer, the, the, it's no, longer, no longer something to be fearful of. Only to those not initiated in them will the alien influences that seek to ensnare the Torah students appear as gigantic revolutionary discoveries. If you never know what anything else is about, everything that people talk about is scary and going to knock you off your path. Only students familiar with those influences will be able to see them in proper perspective and with all their limitations, so you can see the good and the bad, so that they will no longer stand in awe of them. 
Conversely, any knowledge that is deliberately kept from the students during their years of study will confront them all the more powerfully in their later lives. And then it's perhaps too late. And so in a very bold move, he's tried to bring the world together and synthesize that world with Torah, with Judaism. A Judaism that wasn't, isn't scared to confront a Judaism that was relevant and modern. It's not Judaism that needed updating. It was their understanding, Jewish understanding of Judaism. From a simple, perhaps we could almost say primary school level for many people, and many people in our community, in the broader community, if you stop learning Jewish studies in high school and you never continue as you are doing tonight, then knowledge will always be simple and simplistic. You have to keep studying it and show the depth. You, you can't possibly understand... For, our daughter did further maths. I had no, absolutely no understanding of what she did. Maths, when we, I was going out, involved numbers, and all sorts of letters, and there's squiggles, and all manner of strange things. So if you, th if you only ever stay in primary school maths, number bonds to 10, then yes, maths will be pretty simple. You can probably master that quite well, which numbers add to 10. But when you go higher, you recognize the profundity and the depth, and the same is something we need to, to shout out to people to recognize the beauty and the magnitude of a full Jewish life. So how does Rav... So we'll learn a bit of Torah with Rav Hush. Last week's parasha, we met Moshe Rabbeinu. We're going to learn a bit of Moshe Rabbeinu through the eyes of Rav Hush. Listen to what he does to it, to this character. It makes him... It's just... It's so majestic. If we had a lot of time, I would ask you what you think the meaning is, then we'll tease out how Rav Hush does it. But we're just going to skip to the conclusion. Last week we learned, Vayigdal Hayelet, the child grew up. Oh no, sorry, I skipped the pasuk. Forget back to when he was born. Vataha Isha, his mother became pregnant. Vatera Ben, and she gave birth to a boy. Vatera Otor Kitovhu. She saw that he was good. Everybody knows Rashi. The light at home was filled with light. Okay, fine. We can do that. Not tonight. And then she hides him for three months. Rav Hirsch says what the most obvious comment that Tov normally means beautiful. This interpretation, however, ignores the nature of mums. For what mother doesn't find their baby beautiful? Even if it's like underweight and bony and a bit scrawny and looks sort of not really like a human yet. Or, you know, and it's like you're playing pre premature nappies and it's all a bit weird. No, my baby's beautiful because it's been inside me for nine months and of course it's beautiful. So what's the, what's the novelty that the Torah tells us that she saw her baby and he was tough, he was a beautiful kid. More than that, if the baby had been less beautiful, would the mother on that account not have done her very utmost to save the baby? Look at the verse. She, had, she got, became pregnant. She has a baby. She saw that he was good, beautiful, and then she hides him to save his life. Presumably, the logic would be, if, she, if he wasn't beautiful, she would have chucked him out. And she, she only saves him because of his beauty. Nice question. Rather, Tov should be understood according to its simple meaning. She saw that he was a good child, one who did not cry for no reason who would keep quiet if only his needs were met. Such a child it would be possible to keep hidden, because it wouldn't make a lot of noise. She would only have to satisfy his hunger, care for him properly like a devoted mother, and he would not cry. That's the start of his life. Anyone that's sitting here remembering babies that cried nonstop? Yes, you're, you're allowed to be jealous. You didn't give birth to a baby, Moshe Rabbeinu. But that's okay. And then time progressed. He gets older now, it's a teenager or so, and he now, or is a bit older, he has to be brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and he becomes her son, and she names him. So this whole Moshe, what does it really mean? 
She did not name him Mashui, one who was drawn from water, but Moshe, one who delivers from water. This may indicate the direction of education that the princess gave her child. We don't think about Moshe's you know, princess mum teaching him something, but Rav Hush recognized something profound in Moshe's personality that he got from his Egyptian mother. Put those ideas together. Maybe that recognition that you can learn, or culture can give you something. Culture can, pr- can provide you with something. We can turn the heating down now, I think. I think, put up one moment. I'm just going to turn the It will get cooler. Okay, so what was that? The, the princess of Egypt was giving Moshe Rabbeinu an education. She chose not you were slapped out of the water, which would have made more sense, but rather who delivers from water. As long as he lives, he must never forget that he was thrown into the water and that I drew him out of it. For this reason, he should always be soft-hearted and attentive to the suffering of others. And he should be ready at all times to be a Moshe, a deliverer in times of trouble. How profound that his whole essence was given to him from an external source. Not only the external source, but the princess of Egypt, who you might have thought would be steeped in cruelty and uh, the warped world of the Egyptian palace. But he sees his name an educational tool. Furthermore, his Hebrew name is to make him ever conscious of his origin. So again, it's, you can perhaps, you know, it's, it's, the non-Jewish influence teaches him all about compassion and caring, but without damaging his origin, without damaging his identity. In all this, we can recognize the noble, humane character of Moshe's savior. It takes a lot to want to recognize the beauty in others, which many of our commentators didn't never wanted to do. The others are always on the wrong side of the spiritual conundrum. They're always evil in essence, and then the, the, the souls are tainted. Here we have potentially a very beautiful person who saved Moshe Rabbeinu. And his life goes on, he goes out for the walk, and he beats up this Egyptian. ish. He checks around, no one's here. Says Rav Hirsch, this aspect of Moshe's character is of decisive importance. To be sure, he, deep, he is deeply imbued with a sense of duty to rush to the aid of any innocent person who is oppressed. Said before, get involved in civic duty, civic responsibility. Perhaps Rav Hirsch, und- no, it's not just how he sees Moshe Rabbeinu, but it's a symbol of how he wants all of us to behave. There is responsibility to others. Thus, he will justify the name given to him by his foster mother, always be willing and ready to help others. But hot-headed, reckless risking of one's life is foreign to him. He is far from the fiery and infectious daring that is required for one to lead a great multitude and urge them along a hazardous enterprise of breaking their chains and fighting their way to freedom. To a man who first looks around to make sure there are no witnesses, it would not occur, not even in a dream, to become the savior and leader of his people. The element of desire to become a historical hero was entirely lacking in him. Alternatively, you could could understand, what Hirsch is teaching us is doing the right thing for the right reasons and for the sake of doing it, your, your duty to others and to the world without seeking glory, without looking 
for other things. Then the next day he goes out and now Jews are driving each other crazy and they have a go at him. Who appointed you to be the big boss? This comment reveals Jews. Even at this early stage in our history, a trait that characterizes us to this very day, a trait that is the root of all our flaws and our virtues as a nation. 600,000 men cannot muster the courage to defend their children against non-Jewish henchmen, but to the authority of a fellow Jew, no one will submit. There's a lot in there. They, you know, they weren't going to push the walls of Egypt down, but one Jew tries to tell them to behave, and they have a go. Even the most justified reprimand from a fellow Jew is regarded as, pres as presumption, as a violation of the principle of the equality of all. And Rav Hirsch had a fair amount of that in his life, being driven crazy by those who took him down from the right and the left, and those who didn't really appreciate what he was doing. He runs away, gets to Midian, and now he becomes the savior of Yisro's daughters. He had seven daughters, and they were busy filling up the water troughs to, feed, to, to water their sheep. With a men. Should be with a nun, because they're ladies. They were pushed away, but it's a masculine. Of Hirsch points that out. Vayakom Moshe, Vayoshi An. Now with a nun, because now that makes sense. He saved them, female. Vayashket Soinamani gave their, their, their sheep to drink. The daughters are referred to twice in the masculine and once in the feminine. Changes in the gender of language are never without reason. Here it's obvious, he says. The shepherds came and pushed them away, did not treat them as girls, but treated them roughly, as though they were one of themselves, whereas even the crudest of people will show consideration, this is not going to be 21st century next to do sentences, to the weaker sex. Get over it, if anyone's on the recording listening. Moshe helped them because they were powerless, not because they were in the right, which he, as a stranger, could not judge. He didn't know who was right. He came along and saw, saw an, an altercation. He had no idea who was right and who was wrong. But because they were vulnerable. The watering of the sheep, however, was not part of the rescue. Moshe did this not, not out of gallantry towards the women, but simply out of kindness to help people who had been frightened and were now exhausted. Had they been men, he would have acted no differently. Hence it says in the, mas in the masculine, Vayashket Sonom, with the mem at the end. He gave water to their sheep. He came to their aid because they were women, and he watered their sheep out of kindness towards human beings who were weary victims of abuse. Really interesting perspective. Amoshes, this character that emerges is ultimately the Yisrael Mensch, the, the Israel man, like Superman, but Rav Hirsch's version of Superman. Israel man, without the cape and with the kippah on his head. He wants us to become this, this moral beacon for humanity and the world. So let's just do one more bit of Moshe Rabbeinu. Right at the end of the Sedra, this helps you tie into this week's parasha. Right at the end, Moshe is utterly fed up. Everything's gone wrong. Hashem gives him an instruction. He does what he's told, but it hasn't gone very well. And power has made things considerably worse. Moshe turns to Hashem and says... Why have you made things worse? Two times he asks the question. He asks two questions. For what purpose 
have you brought upon this people which you want to redeem a new calamity? It seems ridiculous. It doesn't help. And for what reason did you send me of all people? From the very outset, I said I'm not capable, which is now confirmed by the failure of my mission. And all this, la'am hazeh, what have they done that you should make their lives even more miserable? Now, although Hashem had informed Moshe beforehand that Parah would not, would not listen to him, the people had understood, and justifiably so, that at least the oppression would stop. Like, you're doing a God mission, so he won't let you go, but maybe life will become a little bit easier. And now it's got worse. In the first question, Moshe says, La'am hazeh, as though to say, apart from their relationship to you, they're human beings. They are people, no worse than others. Certainly no worse than the Egyptians. Why have you brought such unspeakable misery upon them? More, ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, they have become your people. Amecha, your people. First they're just regular humans. Now there's a special relationship. Your name and renown are associated with their fate. If your name is not to be desecrated and people's faith in you is not to be undermined, let your name protect them, at least from new distress. His mission was a failure. Pirate only become harsher and added his derision to oppression. The people see Moshe and Aaron as deceivers at best, or themselves deceived. Moshe's doubting himself. And perhaps Rav Hirsch at times may have felt, in our writings, might have felt equally concerned for his own sense of self and his own sense of Hashem's people and bringing a new way of doing things, this synthesis of old and new. How do we do? I'm telling you this is the way to go. The ghetto walls have come down. Be obedient to our tradition, but look at the world and take from it. And perhaps at times he was challenged with being a deceiver, someone that was perverting the essential truths. But he did so for the honor. His mission was for the honor of, the, the honor of Hashem, which he saw others at his time trying to destroy and trying to break apart. And ultimately, those who follow his path, I think, will live lives that are far richer than if you go to either of the extremes whilst being obedient as we can to the halachic system. Thank you very much.